With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's also a romanticized view of history. That's the piece that we have to break away from because for every progress that we celebrate and we highlight, there's a separate act that would follow it up that would bring it back. And from a historic perspective, a lot of times we don't focus on those acts and we think that everything's been up and to the right. And it's definitely not been the case. And so that's how I'm spending my Black History Month. I'm trying to feed my curiosity around things that we don't talk about. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Roman. I can't believe February's almost over. I know. I can't tell if time is moving faster or slower this year. It's like a little bit of both. All right. So I got to ask the million dollar question. Uh, your boys are black. So mm-hmm. what have you been doing for Black History Month? You always ask me questions that make me feel like I'm a bad mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've done a couple things. They're, they, they did some stuff for school. So we contributed to a video that the school had shown how different families are celebrating and recognizing Black History Month this year. And so some of that was kids holding up signs for Black Lives Matter, kids watching Kamala getting elected. So just a lot of poignant moments and reflecting on that. So I guess the other question is like, you're not black, you're Chinese, right? American. Did you do stuff like that when you were growing up? Kind of like to me, it was always something we talked about in school, like just reflecting on the luminaries that had made a difference. So it was more of like a historical exercise. And I think, I think, I feel like this year in particular, it's an opportunity to celebrate people that are here doing things now. And I think that's kind of a big, a big difference between now and then. How hmm. about you? I mean, I think growing up in Alabama, something I realized now that I'm not in Alabama is like, I grew up around a lot more black people back then than I do now. So it was, it was a thing in school and it was a thing with our friends, but nowadays I don't actually think we do much about it. I don't know. And how do you think our black friends celebrate it or recognize it? I don't know. Maybe we should ask him. Hey, Tess, what's up? Hello. Hey, Matt. Are you there? I am here. Awesome. All right. So as you guys may have realized by now, Sharon and I are not black. (laughs) And I'm not going to be the first person to say some of my best friends are black because I guess I know black people. (laughs) (laughs) What a thing to say. (laughs) Just keeping it 100. Sorry. (laughs) 
Well, to be fair, we have a lot of friends from different backgrounds, Roman, but part of the show is to have conversations with people who have different experiences. So you might remember a friend of the podcast, Matt Story, who we talked to last fall. We even showed up on his podcast, What's Your Story? Yeah. And of course, you guys will remember Tess Thomas from our episode just a few weeks ago. Tess is director of talent at Paradigm Strategy, a leading diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. So you guys, Black History and Black History Month means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it's not quite a holiday. I mean, we just did an episode on Chinese New Year where a few of us educated Raman on some of the traditions for his half-Chinese daughter. Yeah. And even like, look, working in New York City for a few years, I become more aware of the Jewish high holidays and then there's Ramadan and Diwali and even Juneteenth. But I mean, Black History Month's a very different thing. It's almost like 100 years old. It's been around our entire lives, our parents' and our grandparents' lives. And I guess we would love to know from you guys, what did Black History Month mean for you growing up? Cool. Uh, so thanks, guys, for having us on. I think this is a, it's an important topic and important for us to have a discussion like this. So, so looking forward to it. But I, I would say for me... Growing up, Black History Month was like having the same discussions about the same time periods and the same people. So we talked a little bit about the civil rights movement. You talked a little bit about slavery. You definitely highlighted Harriet Tubman. You talked about Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King. And unfortunately, given how old I am, I wasn't able to even know that something like Barack Obama would happen. But I'm sure that would have been a piece of it too. But it was bringing those common held moments out and highlighting them as how great of a history we have. What about you, Tess? What did Black History Month mean for you growing up? Because you're half Black. Yeah. I would echo a lot of the things that Matt just talked about. And not only am I half Black, but I would say Black presenting. I grew up in in white spaces and white schools specifically. And so it was an interesting experience being oftentimes the only non-white face in the room in elementary school or middle school when focusing on the, the content that they were talking about, celebrating to an extent. But I would also argue that a lot of the things that are discussed during Black History Month and, and Black History in general are quite traumatic. And I think that it also doesn't leave a lot of space or room for some of the more joyous or building up this beautiful community and this this beautiful space that, that it is, right? And so for me, it was feeling quite othered a lot of the time in those conversations, mm -hmm. but also growing up in a white household, it was also my only kind of access to a lot of this information and kind of going through the same education that my white student peers were doing as well. When I was growing up in like world history, when India would come up, people would be like, well, what do you think, Roman? And be like, I don't know. <laughs> like, did that happen to you, Tess? Like, I mean, were you... You grew yes. up in a most, it sounds like you grew up in a most, well, yeah. And, and like, how did you answer yeah. that question? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I just like, I'm like bringing back to the moment of like sitting in your desk at school and you're, the teacher's talking about this stuff and people are just kind of like slowly looking over their shoulder and staring at you. Or maybe somebody who is a friend is kind of like, oh gosh, is, is that what it's like? And you're like, hmm. what do you even mean? Right. So there was just a really, a, a lack of understanding, a lack of connection. And, and truly, I think Black History Month, even though a lot of people have a lot of feelings about it, it really is the only time when you're you're truly diving into the, the depth of some of this history and, and some of the, the people who have led the struggle throughout the last several hundred years, right? So it was definitely that. And, and But to be fair, like it still is to an extent, right? I mean, even last year when everything was happening around racial justice focus, there was still a lot of people reaching out to Black people saying, is this what it's like? Or, or help me understand, you know, even though obviously the access to information is much different than it is than it was then. And 
people should know better by now, I think. <laughs> you would think. I mean, Matt, what about you? Like, so. <laughs> were you, did you grow up in a mostly black community, a mixed community? And like, how was, how, yeah, how did you kind of process things as a kid with all of this? Yeah, so I, I kind of had a, in both sides of the coin, so to speak. So I, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan up until the second grade. So my community looked and felt uh, a lot like me. I think we talked about in the first episode, my good white friend, Jeremy, that I remember to this day <laughs> because of him being the only white student. But then it flipped and I moved to Indiana, which it sounds like was very similar to Tessa's experience where I was one of the few black or brown faces. And so there was a lot of the entire class, I mean, including the teachers looking to me as like representative of, of kind of that time period and understanding, well, what does this mean? And to be in elementary school, to be in middle school, where you're learning as everyone else is learning, and by no yeah. means are you a voice of an entire history of community. And so it, it was difficult. And I took the snippets that I was given, and that was my understanding of history. I think the fortunate thing, though, is where we are now is given the access to information and also the amount of studies and research that have been done on so many other things. I'm hoping that our kids are able to access a lot of that outside of school so that when they're put on that, we'll call it platform to be representative, that they have a bit more of the resources to be able to deal with that because it is a very unfortunate thing, but I, I don't think it's going to stop or, or not happen when you have a, a few people representing a very important topic. And you bring up a good point. I think a lot of what I experienced for Black History Month was very much in the classroom. It was tied to historical figures. It's Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman, just like you had said. And that pressure of expecting Matt's story at the age of 11 to know like what Martin Luther King was like growing up or something, as if you personally know these people is is sort of like I can feel that as you're talking about it. Wait, all I, black people, are you telling me all black people don't know each other? <laughs> <laughs> he was expected to know everything exactly. about every exactly. historical black person. I mean, I, Gandhi, Gandhi's my homie, guys. Come yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> but it's funny, um, but something you're hitting on is like, it's also a romanticized view of history. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's the piece that we have to break away from because for every progress that we celebrate and we highlight, there's a separate act that would follow it up that would bring it back. Yeah. And I think in from a historic perspective, a lot of times we don't focus on those acts and we think that everything's been up and to the right. And it's definitely not been the case. Right. Well, I guess that's the question. We said we romanticized it at school. And for Sharon and I, that's kind of where it ended. But you guys had parents. Like, what was Black History Month at home? Did you guys talk about the other parts, Matt, that you're talking about? Uh, for my family, not necessarily from a historical perspective. It was more so focused on our family. And making sure that I was aware of what I came from and who those individuals that I stand on the shoulders of what they represented. So it was less of cruising through the encyclopedia to get all the various touch points of history. It's more of like, this is who your grandparents were. This is who your great grandparents were. This is what they went through. This is what they were able to endure. And so I hold a lot of those stories close to my upbringing because hearing about how my great-grandfather built his house from scratch. He not only designed it, he also did the work. He also did every single piece of it from the, you know, carpentry to the electric to everything. And and so like to me that that's the type of black history that I was given. Obviously that doesn't resonate with the Jeremy's of the world, but for me I took pride in it. 
That's so interesting. And on my side, it is different. So I, I grew up in a single parent household. My mother raised us and my mother is, is a white woman from, from Nebraska. Yeah. And we didn't have any of those conversations, right? Because they're, they're not only was it a single parent household, but we also were fairly cut off from that side of my father's family for very specific, reasonable reasons at that. So we there wasn't any depth or relatability in the conversations that we had in our own home, right? And it was my sister and I primarily growing up when, when I was younger. So it, it pains me to, to think about it in that way of that my education and the extent of that was literally all that I had access to at school. And when we know about who is designing those programs, those historical programs talking about Black history and the Black history celebrations, it's not often Black people that are writing the texts and, and that are designing those programs in schools, especially if you're in a predominantly white community. So I'm missing that aspect of that connection to that side of me. But then as I've talked about in my first podcast with y'all was really diving into a lot of that in my own self-study and, and realizing what that is. And I can talk to my friends and they'll tell me about their grandparents and great grandparents experience with the great migration, even though I can't necessarily tap that piece in, in my own family lineage. Yeah. To kind of invoke the holy O, not Oprah, but Obama in his first <laughs> book, in his first book, Dreams from My Father, he talks about that. Like, his father wasn't in his life, but he's this mixed race kid growing up with his grandparents you know, after he got back from Indonesia, right? Like with his white family. And I guess at some point he started to wonder and want to know more, kind of as what Matt was talking about, the family history that he didn't know about. Did that, how did you reconcile that test, like your own black history, not knowing it, not having the connection or seeking it? Or did you just seek it through your friends, as you were saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I've fully reconciled it, to be honest. I think it's still a work in progress. And I think part of it even comes down to doing the, the 23andMe DNA test and understanding which parts of Western Africa my family descended from. So it, it's pieces like that. But then it's also really, I'm, I'm very curious when, when as soon as any of my Black friends are able to kind of share some of those experiences of what they have learned from their own families, what it was like growing up in their households. And I think just like having that insatiable curiosity and always being open and excited to learn about that, I think is helpful, but it's definitely been a hole that I've been dealing with my entire life. And I want to be fair. My mother was a single parent. She had two yeah. daughters that she was raising at the time. She did her absolute best and you can't put that, I can't put that on her to be like, well, why, why did you not do better yeah. about <laughs> educating us about blackness? Right? Like yeah. she doesn't have anything to pull from. So I, I get it, but yeah. I, I watched This Is Us. I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was it. <laughs> but there, there's something you just hit on Tess of like the fact that many of us, like, I, I don't know any of us that can go past our great grandparents. And so yeah. like to, yeah. to think about, I also did the 23andMe and, and had to go in and look at, I'm part this, part that. And there was pride in that, but there's also a sense of loss of not knowing what are those stories? What was that journey like? What happened before 1619? Mm -hmm. And what were we like? And what was that heritage and lineage, which unfortunately many of us will never, ever understand or be exposed to? Yeah. As a kid of immigrants, like, yeah, I don't know my own story as much, but I do know Punjabi is the kind of Indian I am from this part of India, from this migration during partition. And that just gets cut off dramatically because of how black people came to this country. Like there's yeah. minus a 23 and me test. How do you figure that out? You can't go back beyond that. And, and even in the 23 and me, it's like, I'm part Nigerian, part colonizer, part colonizer, part colonizer. Yes. <laughs> like, like that, that, that's pretty much what the makeup is. And it's just like, you kind of want to know, like, when did that happen? And when did that happen? But no one really has that that story. So Matt, you talked about it earlier, like black history at school is, the people, the figures, Rosa Parks, 
Harriet Tubman, John Lewis, et cetera. And then it's your own people, your family, your grandparents, how they built the house. But you also talk about it. It's also about the moments. Like, are there, and like, I'm from Alabama, so we all know about Selma. Like we, mm-hmm. I've, I've been to the bridge, I've been to the museum, et cetera. Like, are, are there moments in history that as a family or in school, whether it be a positive or negative one that, that you guys think about? So th- this is something I've actually started to spend more time on of late because of the time period we're in. I think everyone keeps talking about this as unprecedented times. And like, we've never seen anything like this, which I actually disagree with. I think if you look at what happened post the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. it's very similar to what we're seeing right now. And I think that we're going into a very a political climate where it's going to look very similar to what happened in the 60s. There's going to be a significant amount of legislation put forward. There's going to be a significant amount of efforts that people want to have the right intentions of making change and want to, from a corporation standpoint, individual standpoint, are going to want to do things. But I've actually been trying to educate myself as much as possible on what happened in the 70s and 80s, because I'm afraid that we're going to have all this great intention and there'll be unintended consequences that we've seen before. So whether it's related to how we treated the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which was intended to be getting rid of discrimination and trying to make it equitable for everyone to have a home, but then you had like predatory participants, it went wide and far, that basically put people in a worse position than where they were. You also had like the drug epidemic and you had the crackdown on drugs, which really wasn't a crackdown on drugs. It was really a crackdown yeah, on mandatory minimums, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like I, I am worried that we're going to go back into a cycle like that in the very near future, unintended. And so for me, like I, I've been spending a lot of time in that particular time period, kind of those 20 years, because I think there's so many things we can pull out. And so for me, that's how I'm spending my Black History Month is like, I'm trying to feed my curiosity around things that we don't talk about, because it's like we, we tend to jump from literally from slavery and to Jim Crow and to civil rights and to like, Obama's the president. Look at us. Yeah. We're a great nation. But there's so Racism's many, over, right? Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's so many micro moments within those those time periods that we should be learning from and, and taking from. And so that that's where I'm personally interested. I mean, I would encourage everyone to to look into those time periods as well. So Tess, I mean, Matt alluded to what our companies are doing and you're in that professional sphere of the world, right? And I know you're not at like a big CPG company or Nike or something, but you're at a company that helps other companies think about this. And so I guess, how are you framing this moment, not just Black History Month, but the moment we're in and the things people should be doing. Yeah. It's interesting because like my role is internal at Paradigm, right? I yeah. you know oversee talent and, and people internally, but then our consultants and our entire design of our organization is to go out and help other companies achieve their diversity, inclusion and belonging goals specifically, right? And so, but it's not something that can just be achieved by amazing internal emails in February or yeah. having a potluck or what are you, non-pandemic yeah. times, right? When people are in offices, but but it really has to be more of the systemic change or deeper organizational change in those companies. And what people do not want to experience is a company that says that they're so focused on DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, but then Martin Luther King Day is not a recognized holiday. And people aren't able to take that off to do this the work and service that that day truly is designed for, right? Or having more celebrations or more real conversations during Black History Month, but also have inequitable 
hiring practices or pay practices, or it's difficult to get get advancement or, or growth opportunities that, that other peers do. And so again, I believe that there is a place for Black History Month, because I think that it's really critical to have these conversations. And for me, it's largely a celebration of joy and the beautiful stories, even during slave times, because there were so many stories. If you really get into that, you don't have to just hope, focus on like the traumatic pieces of it. But it's got to be something that is a little bit more holistic. And I think that companies just aren't quite doing as much as they could potentially be doing. But again, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing the work. Yeah, I have a friend who works in equity for intersectional race and gender, but she has a saying that training doesn't solve bias alone. Changing systems does because exactly. like you have to... And so kind of revealing the data and kind of really swimming in the data for every company that makes an amazing... Black History Month Instagram post, go look at their leadership team page <laughs> and, and understand their hiring practices. Mm-hmm. How does this translate at home now? Like we're grownups now. We all went to school. We were all kids. We experienced that. But now we're married. We're dating. We have kids. How does, I mean, Matt, you're now in a mixed race relationship. Your kids are half black. Sharon, your kids are half black. How does that translate today? Because like, I think about like, I literally the Chinese New Year's episode was like, okay, well, I had my Diwali traditions. My wife had her Chinese traditions. Now we got to figure out how to bring it to our home because we're the grownups now for these other people that are looking to us or even our peer set test to you. Like your black friends are going or your white friends might be asking or your Indian podcasting buddies asking you like, how, how do you, how do you process black history month and how do you talk about it and think about it? As a grown-up. So in a couple of things. One, it's up to all of us that want to see more of these stories shared and celebrated to support the mediums that are highlighting these stories and, and validating that we want to see these stories. So whether that's movies, that's TV shows, as books, as podcasts, that's whatever form is your, your form of choice, you have to go out and support them. And you have to let, speak with your dollars to show that these stories matter. And so for me, it's like, how many times can I show our girls a story that looks and feels like them, that they can see themselves in? And so if there's anything from a book to a TV show, I'm going to support there. The second thing I think, and this came up for the conversation I was having with someone, is that if you truly stopped and thought about it, like we are the future ancestors. And if we take that responsibility and act accordingly, it will enable you to know what you can do to make a difference in your life. Because I don't think there's a one size fits all for anyone. It's just taking inventory of like, okay, what are the decisions I can make today that when my story's told 30, 40, 80, 100 years down the line, my future generations will be proud of what I did. And my future future generations will say I was on the right side of history, or I actually advanced or accelerated history. And it doesn't have to be, I'm not asking you to go out and, you know, march and, you know, do all these other things that may not work for your current life situation. But just thinking about how do you actually leave a mark and how can you actually make something that it's going to have an impact down the line. And I think if we all did that in small ways in our own individual communities, it'd have a huge impact. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of, God, we are are the future ancestors. It's like taking like 20 steps back, 100,000 feet up and looking at, I think about that with my kid a lot, like my own memories that were shaped as a five, six-year-old when I raise my voice too much or when I demonstrate being there or not being there, but on a more macro societal sense. It's interesting. Tess, what about you? I mean, like, how are you processing it as a grown-up? Yeah. So I think 
and and this has been my kind of thought about this for for more than just last year, right? And I, I'm thinking specifically about everything that happened last year with racial justice and this renewed energy or new energy into that for some, right? I mean, when I really think about like what I'm doing this month, it's not really that different from what I was doing in January or what I was doing in February mm-hmm. of last year, but really trying to patronize black businesses and consume black products and consume black literature and and watch those movies and and watch the content and the arts that that are created by by black people. I think that, yes, on one hand, Black History Month has a place. And also it should not be the only time that we are thinking about these things. So if we're thinking about patronizing black businesses, for example, I think it's important to recognize that that might be an amazing product or an amazing service, not just because it's black, but because that person is amazing at what they do, right? They're creating the best of whatever it is that they're creating. And I think that we're, we're still kind of stuck in that mentality of like, oh, I'm going to go out and only only focus on buying from Black business owners during this month. And then the rest of the year, I'm not really considering that, right? And so I want us to move past that. Let's only focus on these pieces and focusing on supporting and uplifting these communities and these voices during this month and have it be something that people are always just considering at all times. I wonder if it's like almost like a New Year's resolution sort of thing. I, I don't like New Year's resolutions. I use my birthday <laughs> for my New Year's resolutions, but it's like, okay, let's reset our media habit. It's not... Yeah, it's like, okay, so it's February, all the news and all the media and all my black friends and my teachers were talking about it. Okay, so I'm going to change a habit. I'm going to use the month as an excuse to find one, a black owned brand, a black, read more black comic books with black protagonists. Mm -hmm. I'm making this up, right? But I'm going to stick to that habit. It's not a one and done for the month. You don't just go to the gym in January. I guess that's what people, so maybe New Year's is a bad example. That's what people do. (laughs) But some of those habits should stick. I'm going to drink more water. I'm going to drink less coffee. I'm going to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think if people are intentional about it, even if it doesn't feel natural at first, it becomes natural and expected. When, when I think about my own kids, they will never know a world where there wasn't a black president. Like that's their new reality. That's their reality. Or a black female vice president. Right. Exactly. Or a black Spider-Man, right? Like, (laughs) like to them, Miles Morales is Spider-Man. And I think that's really amazing. And if I take a step back, pretty fascinating because I never would have envisioned that growing up either. So it's, it's one of those things where if we each intentionally take actions or are more mindful of the choices that we're making, even with things, especially with things like casting. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with Bridgerton. I love, love, love Bridgerton. And Shonda Rhimes made some pretty, pretty distinct choices about who would be black in her show. And she kind of rewrote history by just creating something of today with a different casting choice. So so I want to I want to go back oh, go to something that that Tess said about it, expanding it beyond that just being the four weeks of February and it being something that is is intentional, but also something that's broader. Like I I would I would argue that Black history is American history. So if you look at any of the major advancements in American history, they were because of Black people. They were built on the backs of Black people. They were built on the work of Black people. And so you can't point to anything that this country has done successfully and not give some form of attributing credit to black people. And I think talking about that and also thinking about like, I would, I would challenge anybody to go through their, go to their Twitter feed, their Instagram feed, their chats, their group chats, look at the memes that you share. I would argue that one out of two is a black person. And it's like, we are so integrated into popular culture and we as black Americans drive that culture, but we don't always benefit from it financially. 
And so I think focusing on those things, whether it is a Bridgerton or it's it's a particular series or book that's actually from a black production company or from a black executive producer or whatever the the thing is, and really supporting those versus it feeling like, oh yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of that rapper, but knowing that behind him is a, it's actually a white music company that's actually getting all the money. And so <laughs> it's like, for, for me, that is the part that is, is actually mind blowing is that people support black people. People actually enjoy black culture, but we don't actually financially contribute to it. And we don't financially contribute to the communities that are really driving that culture. And that's the shift we have to figure out and we have to make. Right. Because it's like, so full disclosure, one of my clients right now is a black comic book company. And we talk about for the culture, by the culture. It's a culture company that makes comics. But we talked about Miles Morales earlier. Like I, I get, I love, by the way, like great character created by Brian Michael Bendis, a white, amazing comic writer in Portland into the Spider-Verse. We love that movie. But the two guys are the guys from the Lego movie. I think they're two white guys. And it's like, it, it, and, and Miles Morales was inspired by, Bendis got inspired when he heard the rumor that Donald Glover might be cast as Spider-Man, right? And a bunch of comic book artists did drawings of that. And that's literally where Miles Morales came from. So it's fine. It's this cultural influence thing. But I guess, Matt, to your point, it's like, who are the creators? Where's the money going? Who's it coming from? Yeah. And it's, I, again, I, I love Miles Morales as much as the next guy. Into the Spider-Verse for me was better than Black Panther that year. And that was a, that's, those are fighting words, I know, but like, <laughs> sorry guys, but recognizing uh, who's really behind this. There's no, I'm not to instigate like malicious intent. That's not there, but it's who is creating this because there is, to your point, Matt, yeah, I love that statement. Black culture is American culture and American culture is one of our greatest exports as a country. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. black culture is part of it. So I, Matt, I want to actually put a question straight on you, like your podcast and I hate to overly summarize, but what's your story is you're, it's kind of like about black excellence. You're talking to interesting tastemakers and change makers, entrepreneurs, et cetera, that are mostly black. And I guess back to your statement, I don't know what this question is, but back to your statement of like, we are our future ancestors. How do we think about how are we making black history today? Yeah. So I I think that there's any number of examples of this, both public and private, where you have examples of black people doing great work. And and so for me, I I see the podcast as a way, I like how you you framed it of kind of shining a light on black excellence. But for me, and I know we talked about this before, so I won't spend too much time on it, but like, I, I feel like brown and black people have superpowers. And literally going back to the comic references, like we're in regular life hiding these superpowers. We're, we're being Clark Kent when we should be Superman. And my goal is to bring it out so that we show up as Superman and we don't feel the need to hide behind glasses and hide behind a trench coat. And I probably stretched that metaphor way but too is that far. Coach, but is that, is that code switching though? Is that code switching? The it, trench coat and the thing? Is that what it's, that is? It's not code switching. It's, it's assimilating because uh, – so one thing that's interesting. So I started for this season of my podcast, like I've tried to – really hone in on like, what are those superpowers and what does it enable? And one of the things I found is many, and again, I'm not saying this is limited to black people, but I think many black people can relate to it because of our ability to go into an environment and feel out the room and understand who's a friendly, who's not a friendly. Is this safe? Can I do this? Can I not do that? And like, these are things we have to do literally in like seconds of walking into any environment that is new or even some environments that aren't new. And because of that, we actually develop empathy muscles 
that allow us to have a higher emotional intelligence when it comes to connecting with people and it comes to reading people. And so I can actually sit on a Zoom and based on the way someone's operating, because again, I've been programmed to read a room and know like, am I safe here? I can actually understand when somebody's not safe and I can actually reach out to them and say, hey, I noticed you kind of reacted to this thing. Are you okay? And mm -hmm. that's an example where because of my own experience, and, and again, this isn't something that's unique to me. I, I've talked to a number of people that have the same experience that we've been able to develop these superpowers around connection, empathy, and being able to truly understand someone that I may not actually look like or that I may not have experiences with. And to me, that's where we have to go and we have to find ways to use that and allow people to be able to use those superpowers in bigger, broader ways so that, again, we're not being Clark Kent. Tess, do you feel like you also have to utilize your superpowers in the same way? Yeah. I love what Matt just said and the framing of that and, and kind of defining that aspect. I would also say that to an extent, it's it's not something that we can't get a break from that, right? It's like always this like action and this activity and this weight that we have to carry in a way. So, okay, that's like what we have to, to pay to play and just to like exist in the world that, that we are existing in that is a, a largely racist society and structurally racist society. However, the beauty that Matt was just talking about is the outcome of that is having that deeper level of empathy and deeper level of going through the world, being more aware of people who look like you and people who don't look like you, right? So I, I think I love that piece of it, but just also want to call out that that also includes the, the potentially negative side of that, the, the weight of having to do that, right? So I don't know. It's, yeah, I think that's something that you can't move forward without considering that piece of it. But I'll also share. So, I mean, when I think about legacy, when I think about like us rewriting history and we are going to be the future ancestors, I want to share that like our house is not in order. Like there's still so much that needs to be fixed and, and changed. And also we now have a bigger black up middle class and upper class than ever has existed before, even though many you know, cities even to this day are still, you know, reeling from redlining and other racist structures based on housing and things like that. People can have real estate and have access to real estate and building wealth through real estate, which wasn't something that was even possible 100 years ago. And then even things like stock market and things like that, right? So I feel as if there's starting to be a little bit of a shift. And again, it might still just be for a certain group of, of the Black population, because a lot of folks are still reeling from lack of good education, lack of healthy foods in their environment and communities, like all of these different pieces that really have rooted in preventing Black people and Black communities from having access to the same thing that others do. But I feel as if we're starting to change a little bit and it is incremental in some ways, right? But I think that that's another significant piece about what will be different for our children and their children. So I'm going I'm to politely agree and disagree. <laughs> and, Very fair. And what, I, what I'm going to agree with is I 100% I agree that we've come a long way since redlining. We've come a long way from like segregated neighborhoods. And like, I even look at the neighborhood we live in now. Like, I know that like, if I was 40 years older, I would not be able to live in this neighborhood just off of the mere fact of what my family composition is. And, and so I agree that the the black middle class has definitely advanced. But my worry is the access to a lot of these things that exist for some of us that have made it into that sphere are not readily available. And due to the long-term impacts of redlining, the long-term impacts on predatory lenders, the long-term impacts of like white flight and, and all these other things that happened historically, there are some people that are so far behind that just because they have access to the stock market or just because they have access to, right. yeah, you can right. live in any neighborhood, 
that doesn't mean they can actually do it. And so I, I think that we do need to consider what are the remedies we could take to offset some of that? Because the, again, I was having a conversation with a podcast guest and he said, if you look at a lot of the progress we've made, if I were to mess up, and again, that mess up could be, could be small or big, my family is going right back to that where we were a generation ago. And I can't say that all other races have that same weight on their shoulders. They have a yeah. bit more of a, a safety blanket, if you will, to protect them. And, and that's what worries me about kind of some of the advancements we made is that they're very tenuous. Yeah, I agree 100%. We're still not there with like actually having generational wealth. We're, we're like the first generation to get into that. I, it, Matt, that was actually one of the episodes I listened to of yours. I, I know that guest really well. That idea of your one bad year or one generation away, that the safety net doesn't exist. And the idea of generational wealth, it's weird. The I had only heard it. I, I understand what it means when you say it, but the only people I've ever heard say that and understand and aspire to that concept is black people. And I think it's because of not that fear, but that realization that you've only just kind of made it. Like you go back one generation, your parents' socioeconomic experience was much different. And I'm not saying mine wasn't or a white person couldn't have had that experience as well, but overwhelmingly in the black community, one generation ago was dramatically different. Yeah, like it's systemic. So I'm going back to what yeah. what, what Tess yeah. started with. Like this, this isn't by accident that this just so happens that Black people's experience like this. This is actually how these systems have been established. Well, it's um, part of our country, right? right. Yeah. So, like, if you look at why there is a generational wealth gap, is because we were able to build wealth in this nation yeah. behind yeah. property ownership, and the way we were able to build wealth is you kept Black people out of the neighborhoods, so mm -hmm. the value of those neighborhoods went up, and so you actually use Black people to create that wealth such that there's actually a significant gap between what the black community has and what the white community has. And many others that were able to benefit from that increase in, in wealth just off the mere fact of being able to live in the suburbs at a time when others couldn't live there. No, I mean, literally it manifests itself in the American cliche, which I hate to say this, but it's like, there goes the neighborhood. Like that yeah. is such a loaded statement that's rooted in the economics of what you just said. We went really far. <laughs> I, I wanted to, man. This is this is good. I, I, uh, to kind of bring it back, because we only got a few minutes left. See, it feels like such a trite question to ask, but I might as well. Like This month, this year, what's one thing that you've seen or done in Black History Month that you wouldn't have done before? How are you experiencing it differently this year than you have before? Or maybe not at all. I'll be very honest. <laughs> I know I'm still incredibly tired from everything that happened last year and incredibly tired from, we started with everyone changing their Instagram and Facebook photos to that black photo and like moving on from there and kind of this immediate sense or need to start reading, to start becoming woke, to start lifting people out of where they were, like the darkness that they were before of just not seeing truly what was actually going on in the world around being black in America. And I'm just really, really tired from it. I just, I can't, yeah, I'm not I'm not really engaging as much as I, I might normally have been. Where mm -hmm. normally I think I would go into a, a Black History Month a little bit more excited, a little bit more curious and eager to see like what is being done. But I think so much of it still feels like lip service because a lot of it was last year, right? And yeah. it's on one hand, I think that some people have definitely 
gotten on this path and begun their journey, but it's a little bit like I'm leaning into a lot of like, like black Twitter and like some of those folks on Instagram that are creating just amazing memes, celebrating black joy and and, and black love and all of the things that are great about being black in, in this world. But outside of that, like, I'm not really, I mean, except for maybe like the Ben and Jerry's account, like I'm not really interested what other companies are, are, are doing or saying about this work because unless they've already been doing this and on this journey for a long time, it's not really content that I want to be giving my uh, attention to. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm similar in that I'm definitely taking inventory of my energy and ensuring that I don't get too low or stretch too thin. Because I think that our emails, our, our Twitters, our Slacks or whatever are probably firing up. People are asking us to do more in, in this month. Show up on um, podcasts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is, again, I think there's a positivity to it. But I also think that we just have to, you have to manage your own energy yeah. to ensure that you take care of you. And then the second thing, is, again, related to what Tess just touched on, like I'm looking at receipts. Like I want to see who's actually doing the work and that's who I will support. And if you aren't doing the work, then because like this is the one month that you should be doing the work. (laughs) And if you're not doing it this month, then I'm taking note. And that's not just a company thing. That's a person thing. And there's a lot of people that are like, hey, I'm here for you. But like they're quiet right now. And, and so I'm taking inventory of that because for me, as you mentioned, we're busy people. We have families. I can only spend my time doing so many things. And so I want to spend it with people that have similar ambition and intentions. So, yeah. So I guess the last question for both of you guys, what's one thing you want non-Black people to do after Black History Month is over, after the New Year's resolution has been made or whatever it is? I would ask you to challenge your misconceptions because we all have them. We all have like, when I show you a picture of someone, you instantly have a thought of someone. When you instantly see a name, you have a a thought about it. I would challenge everyone that is non-Black, as you think about Black people, you think about the Black experience, to think about where that came from and, and peel that onion back to see like, oh, that's actually because I heard such and such say this, or I watched this, or I was exposed to this, or I assumed this. And do the homework to actually see if it's valid. Because I think there's a lot of things out there that would point to many of those misconceptions were intentionally created. And it was created to divide us. It was created to keep a certain class of people at the bottom so that we would have a top class. So that would be my challenge. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that people need to start paying black people for this work. <laughs> like, but, but no joke, right? Like, like for the full, what's your Venmo? Are- what's your Venmo? No? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, not, not talking directly to you all, but I mean, but for real, I, I think that especially right now, people are asking for, for more speakers, thought leaders in this space coming into organizations and either asking them to do it for free or not paying them exactly what they're worth in the market. But we know that this can't be work that is accomplished in just a month, right? It has to be continuous. It has to be serious behavioral change and systemic change moving forward. And so whether even if it's like a friend and you're like, hey, can we have a conversation about this? Because I have a lot of curiosities that I don't understand what, what I'm learning here. Like sit down with me for an hour and like talk to me about it. Like that's great if that black friend of yours is going to do that. But then like cook them dinner, right? Or send them a DoorDash gift card or whatever, but just acknowledge the simple acknowledgement of what that takes and that it is taking a lot of energy away from those people in order to do this. But we also recognize that like having the conversations are necessary. We have to be supportive to an extent, right? We're not going to jump in and just do everything for everybody. But I think acknowledging that and recognizing that and being appreciative is significant. But again, for the folks that should be paid, you should pay them. (laughs) 
Well, thank you. And and yes, Tess, I do feel like we owe you dinner or something. So Raman, make a note of that. We'll send you a Grubhub gift card. <laughs> but you have to buy Indian food. No. <laughs> but no, in guys, all seriousness, thanks Tess and Matt. We really appreciate you spending your time with us and sharing how you celebrate Black History Month, but also how you're making history today. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Women are supposed to be walking this way, talking this way, behaving this way. This was imposed by the boys of the college, and that was a shock to me. But I didn't care less. They're not my parents. They're not my brothers or boyfriends. So why do I care? That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.